0: Welcome to Formative, the show where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Season five of Formative is brought to you by the generous support of Macy's Inc., whose purpose is to create a brighter future with bold representation from underrepresented youth so we can realize the full potential of every one of us. Lee Stringer joins us on today's show. Lee is a three-time published author. His memoirs are raw and inspiring, and he's here to share some of his life with us. Heads up for our listeners, this episode discusses addiction and briefly mentions thoughts of suicide. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge. We're so happy to have you here, Lee. Thank you. And my co-host today is Jamie from PS225X. So hey, Jamie, welcome to today's show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a student from TAPCO. I am 12 and I'm in the seventh grade. (laughs) All right, well, we don't want to wait any longer. So let's welcome in Lee Stringer. Lee, thanks so much for being on today's
1: show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and I'm glad to meet you.
0: Jamie, why don't you ask Lee your first question? What made you
1: want to be an author? That's interesting because when I became an author, I was past wanting to be or thinking I could be an author. When I first wanted to be an author, I was very young, and I would read a lot of books. And I started reading books when I was in this a school for a troubled kid, and I didn't know anybody. But if you pick up a book, and read it. The thing about a book is that the author of the book, the person who's speaking, is like a friend. He wants to give you information. He wants to show you things, share things with you. So I got into books. And then I would get into these books about apocalyptic, you know, like airport where where there's an end of the world apocalyptic things. I can go, wow, I want to write a book. And I would try to write those kind of books. The thing was I've never worked at an airport. Yeah. I never experienced the end of a world. You can't just make it up. You can set up the circumstances, statute, but to make it believable, you have to have some real experience to bring to it. So I tried and I figured I could never be a writer. When I finally became a writer, it was a different thing because I was living in Manhattan. I was homeless at the time. I had a big drug problem. And I started to sell this newspaper called Street Notes, which was a paper for the homeless to sell instead of Panhand. And um, when they submitted something to put in the paper. It was about a friend of mine who was dying. And uh, they published it. I sent another one in. And to be sure I had a kind of a regular column in there. So it was like, yes, I had wanted to be a writer, as your question is, but it was the circumstance that led me to actually do that. And by then, time, I had some experience to share, which is a difference between trying to write and being able to write. It's having something meaningful or worth the reader's time to share.
2: How did you overcome your addiction?
1: Well, that's a big question. First of all, when somebody's addicted, there's a moment where the opportunity for change comes at that moment when you get so sick and tired of being sick and tired that you're as desperate to stop using as you are to get the next hit. And that happened to me when I sort of got a book deal, even while I was addicted. Somebody read something I wrote, picked up a copy of Street News in the subway. He was a publisher, he called the organization. And said, you know, this is a great idea. I'd like to, you know, be a part of it. Would I give a donation, a subscription, much to deal And then he said, and who's this Lee Stringer guy? You like I kind of like his writing. Well, they told me that. And I went in my ego juice. So I called them up, a man named Ben Simon. He said, why don't you come over? And I went to his office. He said, this. He said, that. He says, uh, you know, what you really Maybe you want to do a book. And um, I thought to myself, and this is being honest, I didn't think, oh, I'll do a book. I'll do something to be out there in the culture. I didn't think that at the time. At the time, I thought, well, let's see, book, advance, money, crack? Yeah. Let's write the book. I'm a book writing kind of guy. Let's write this book. And they give me a small advance. It's a $1,000, which is a lot of money when you're homeless. I smoked that up overnight. I realized that it was an opportunity to go on with my life doing something that was really connected to who I am, instead of just a job. And that, on the other side of that, in the way of that, was that addiction. And I got to a point where I just had enough. I called a friend who referred me to a place that took in people who had drug addiction, a shelter, treatment center. And I walked up those stairs, praying that they knew what they were doing. Just praying they knew what they were doing. And fortunately, the place was called Project Renewal, and they knew what they were doing in 18 months program, and then outpatient for another bunch of time, and um, it worked because I was ready. The person has to be ready, and the person has to realize that you're going to need help, not your own real power. So, so that was my story.
2: Did you like the place where you went to, the rehab?
1: Well, it wasn't a matter of liking it. It wasn't a country club. You know, you had to face some hard stuff. But I think what you're really asking me at the end of the road, I was supremely grateful. I mean, so everybody in there, I'm talking right now with the people who sweep the floor. Because they were there when I had nothing. left, I had nothing else. And they were there and it worked.
2: Who is your biggest inspiration?
1: My biggest inspiration? I had a lot of them when I was 18, Martin Luther King, because he was so articulate. He was a brother out there in the public who could spin words off his tongue that would touch a whole nation. That just blew me away. He was one of my big inspirations. David Baldwin was a big inspiration as far as writing. So those are two I can think of.
2: How long does it take
1: to write a book? It depends. I was talking to a lady the other day, she, says, she writes crime novels. I said, Well, how long do you take it? She said, 90 days. And I said, I can't do it in 90 days. It depends on the author and the kind of book, I would imagine. There you are know, books that have a formula and like murder mysteries, love stories, things like that have a formula. So you can do them more quickly because you know just where you're going. I've written memoirs. And so you write them and the way I do it is I'm not sure where they're going. I know this much. I know that the things that I remember vividly have importance because that's how the mind works. The mind saves the important stuff. And if I put it out on paper, I'm going to figure out what I'm telling myself. Actually, I'm going to figure out what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling in a way that I can articulate it on paper for the next person. So for me, it's a matter of a couple of years. I can't just dash something off. I'm telling you, I would hate it. If I can't stand my own writing, I wouldn't put it out there.
2: What are your favorite
1: books to read? Oh, I, I don't have any favorite books right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody assumes that writers are readers. They're two different animals. But I did read when I was young. And my favorite authors when I was young, one of the most influentials were James Baldwin, Richard Wright, even a um, little Hemingway. Hemingway was very tough in his writing. I liked it. It's up in there. A little bit of Kurt Vonnegut. What are your favorite books to read?
2: Right now, a book that I really like is A Raisin in the Sun.
1: Ah, that's a play. Yeah. Yes, by Lansbury, um, right?
2: Yeah, Lorraine Hansberry.
1: Actually, I have a little side story. When I went to Dallas at the age of oh, 18, 19, to work in public television as a news film guy, they had a theater in there, and they would do plays. And you didn't get paid, you volunteered. It was like community theater. And they did the play, Raised in the Sun. And I was to play like the lead role. I got all wrapped up in it because the way this character has to react in the play is almost step and fetch it. You know what step and fetch it is, right? It's kind of that that the old way they used to show, but the bug-eyed, scary cat, Negro. You know, ooh, yeah, you know, it was appropriate, I suppose, for the story. But at the time, because there was a lot of political things happening at that time. One day I just, I couldn't do it. And I stepped off. That's an excellent play.
2: Would you rather non-fiction or fiction?
1: Right now I like nonfiction because, you know, fiction, you can just sort of make up anything. And especially if something's very incredible, it's harder to believe it if it's fiction than if it's non-fiction. You know, if I write in a book that A man bites a dog instead of a dog biting a man. You go, oh, yeah. But if it happened in real life, you'd be, you see what I mean? Nonfiction has the power of belief. In fiction, you have to sort of suspend your disbelief. And the thing about that is that's a good practice, and there's a lot to be said about good fiction, serious fiction, but that's been abused to the extent that, especially in politics and in these podcasts and blogs, People are, you know, suspending their disbelief all too easily. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That bothers me a little. So I would have to pull now a little on the side of nonfiction. What about you?
2: Well, right now, I like fiction.
1: I understand that.
2: Because they be making up stuff and it's just funny sometimes.
1: So Raised in Mm -hmm. the Sun is fiction, but it's true.
2: Yes, James Baldwin
1: once said, all right. It's the laying bare of truth hidden by the fact. Does that make sense, what mm-hmm. I just said? A little. In other words, raising in the Sun is a work of art. It's fiction. But it reveals some truth that the facts alone can't reveal. And that's why they use fiction. It's because it reveals truth in a more efficient way than just a bare fact. For instance, guys on trial. Let's say he, he hit his brother with a hammer. That's a fact. But what's the story? What's the truth behind that? Did his brother attack him? Or is he mentally ill? Or we don't know. So facts alone don't necessarily reveal truth. There's context. And fiction writer gives context to facts and reveals truth. Does that make it a little clearer? Yeah. Where are you from? Where am I from? I'm from my mother. Where are you from? Oh, you mean? Oh, okay. So um, the hospital I was born in was in Austin, New York. I spent the first six years of my life in the Bronx in foster care. And then my mother came and got me and my brother, and we lived in Maradick for the next. 20 years. till so I was 18. And I went to Dallas. And I came back. I went to, to uh, Detroit Public Television. I came back. But so I guess I'm definitely from the New York area. But i I'm more of a, you know, a product of Mimaranek than anything else. Because my formative years were there. You know, the Bronx and Mimaranek, I'd say.
2: Do you like working with kids?
1: Oh, I hate kids. They're so annoying. <laughs> I mean... Oh, uh, yeah, I'm kidding. I love working with kids. I love being there, you know, and maybe able to put something positive out there. For the last, no, I think I spent the last 18 years pre-COVID, you know, working with kids in one form or the other. My second memoir was called Sleepaway School when I was young. I went to school in this town of America, and at the time, there were maybe three black kids in the entire school. And so it was a very tough time for me because people were very stanorphish. I mean, actually, I actually had a third grade teacher who said, now, this is Mr. Stringer, he's different than us, but I don't want you to treat him any differently. God, you know, so um, I, I was very alienated and whatnot, and, by the time I got to uh, fifth grade, I believe it was, I had acted out a number of times because I was very angry at my situation there. I made me feel little. Kids used to tease me because my last name was Stringer. They called me Stringbean. Now, that's innocent enough, but given the way I felt, that used to get me. So I would like, you're still out! Don't you see that? Yeah, I we get very angry, and I would... I didn't want to hit people. I would throw a book across the room. I'd kick my desk over. I'd have these fits and got kicked out in sixth grade when I threw a brute at my teacher. They kicked me out of school and put me in a place called Thorn Theater Knolls, which was a school for kids at risk. Now, there were three of those, and one of them where most African-American kids were sent, but that was full. So well, they said to me the Hawthorne. And again, I was in the same situation. Hawthorne Cedar and no Old School. So eventually I had to confront the problem. And I had managed to, in the couple of years I was there, confront that whole racial issue and status issue in a very meaningful inside way, not just an intellectual way. And um, ended up actually gaining something from it. After I wrote the book, Sweep Away School, I got contacted by one of the administrators there saying they'd like me to come in and do a presentation. So I went and did a presentation and to the kids. It went well. And then they called me back and said, oh, can we do this regularly? And so I started once a week. I would do this therapeutic writer's group with the kids. I did that from 2006 around there till COVID hit. And then at the same time, there's this place called Beginnings, which is a workshop for aspiring performing artists. I worked there for four, five, six, seven years. I found that if, when I work with kids, if I didn't see them like kids, as I treated them almost as my intellectual equal, if they would have made you all the time. So I love this, you know. Jamie, so what is it you were you have an ambition in life, something you want to be or go become? Probably
2: when I grow up, I would want to be a lawyer or a doctor.
1: Wow. Can I ask why? Is it the money or is it the calling or what is it?
2: I don't know. I like got three choices or a real estate agent.
1: A real estate agent. So my guess is that there are people you know in each of these professions who you respect or admire. Is that true? I mean, how do you come upon saying, I want to be a lawyer? What made you say that?
2: I was just watching like a lot of shows and seeing how they were. And I was like, oh,
0: I want to become one one day.
1: I see. So it's mostly television influence.
0: How did your, not your writing of your books develop, but your ability to learn how to write, given your schooling was a little disjointed, right? Like in and out of different schools or...
1: How did did that evolve? I sort of benefited from not having the school so much involved in writing because a lot of the people who teach writing are looking at the telescope to the wrong end. They think that everything on that page was an intention that gets executed by a writer. A lot of people, oh, I can't write. Writing starts with trying to dig in, put something true and honest out there. And little by little, it tells you what it is. In the symbolism or whatnot, nobody intentionally says, oh, I'm going to put a yellow shirt in this scene, and that's symbolic of blah, blah. No, the symbolism is there because that's how your mind works. So it's really opening your mind. How many people have been through this experience? They go to school, they play a piece of music, or they show a clipping from a newspaper or a piece of art, and they say, now, give me... Put on six hundred words on blah blah blah, and you sit down, you start, and you get to six hundred words. You get up. That's not helping it get written, folks. You don't know it in the beginning how many words it's going to be. As your reporter, you know how many to limit it to. But if you're doing, you know, serious writing like a book or something, you don't know it beforehand, even if it's going to be a comedy or a tragedy. I mean, the art part of it is an exploration, not an execution. So I say it, 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 it's it's excavation. And they don't teach that in school. In fact, I was intimidated because I thought that was the way you wrote. You knew where you were going, you executed it. So I sort of benefited from not learning from that. But I think the difference was when I finally got to write, I started to write for Street I had something to say.
2: Was there any people bringing you down throughout your hardest times?
1: There was. During the Giuliani era, uh, when he ran for mayor, he ran on the proposition that crime and everything else was kind of all caused by these homeless people. And he kind of criminalized being homeless. I didn't like that at all, but mostly once I got to talk to a person or meet them, I didn't get a lot of that. I didn't get a lot of negativity.
0: So Lee, you obviously know firsthand what it's like to live on the streets and be addicted and, and probably have some sense of community on the streets as well. If you were mayor, what would you do to solve problems? of homelessness and drug addiction, so that folks can be treated like human beings and have what they need to thrive. What would you recommend?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's occurred to me is the assumption that you solve life, that you remove failings and hardship from the lives of people. And I don't think that's going to happen because, you know, Hardship and failure are instruments by which we form character. If we woke up every morning and realized every ambition, we'd be jumping off a roof within a month because there'd be no reason to wake up in in, the morning. It's like if I want to train soldiers, I don't lay them on his fattened sheet. I put them through hell. I put them through obstacle courses. I beat them up to give them strength to become. So, So that's my personal philosophy about that, okay? If I was mayor, that won't fly. You can't use that kind of Zen philosophy as a mayor. It's just not, it's not accepted, even though it should be. I would say there's a couple of things. I think that the first thing is people become homeless when for one reason or other, the lives they have been living are no longer viable. It can be mental illness. It can be economic. It can be a bad relationship, like you're, you're be- being beaten by your husband or something like that. It can be addiction. But it's not the thing to look at is what is making their lives no longer viable. And we should instead look at their circumstance and say, well, they're outdoors. How do we get them indoor? The second thing is the way we approach the situation it, is to get people to try to pursue a negative, like get off the street. In, in, in the sixties, uh, it was get out of the ghetto. And in the eighties, it was just say no. But you know what? People don't tend to pursue negative. You know, so I think people change as I did when they move towards me. So instead of going out and, you know, trying to get people to get off the street, and, because why? You're asking people to change and change entails loss, and if you're on the street, you're already lost at first. You reverse the loss because you've had a loss, so that that bounces on. If I were mayor, I could at least bring those insights into the process. Now, do I have a, a ready-made solution to solve uh, human nature? No.
2: What keeps you from giving up?
1: I don't know if I never did give up. I mean. What do you mean by giving up? How will I give up?
2: Like you're done. Like you don't want to do this no more.
1: You know, when you're at the bottom and you have nothing, you don't no giving up. Where do you go? You can't say, oh, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. I can't say I'm not going to go out tomorrow and try to find some way to have a meal or get money to, for my drugs or whatever. You There's no nuts doing it. There's no, it's, you understand what I'm saying? That. I don't understand what giving up would mean other than to jump off a bridge. And um, I didn't jump off a bridge because I had a bigger job than that. And that job was to get high every day because I was an addict. that was driven by addiction. But also, somehow, I'll say this much, through it all, that the most of my life has been this weird string of faith that somehow, in the long run, it's going to be all right. I don't know where that came from, but it's been there again and again. Now I can define what makes me not give up. When I'm back then, there wasn't any choice, you know, uh, you know, I, I wake up in the morning. What I have to, I have to get through the day. There'd be no choice. So, I mean, I'd like to brag and say, you know, I have great, you know, perseverance and all that. Well, is it true. I had no choice, you know, and when you have no choice, you find a little bit about who you are. So, and the other thing is throughout my life, I have been the kind of guy that I don't try to set the stage myself. And since set, I deal with it. I have tried to set the stage myself, but every time I set the stage, <laughs> the play isn't very good. So i have sort of take each bite of life that is put up in front of me. So I was, all right, I'm an addict now running around the street, you know, sleeping in underground central. That's what I'm doing now. Let's see where it goes. Human beings are essentially adaptation machine. Our mind and our body will go to its most degree to accept as normal, deal with whatever you present. That's how addiction happens. When you like, you shoot heroin, it's poison. Your body first goes, Oh, no, rah, rah, and you get sick and all. But after a while, your body will adapt the, to, to this poison going on into you as normal. So that when you stop, you feel sick. That's because your, your adaptation machine has changed its chemistry for you. So you have to change it back. Uh, to to a normal state but that's it we are adaptation machine that's why we sit at the top of life because we can adapt better than everything else
2: well this was my last question thank you for letting me
0: talk to you and interview you
1: okay you're welcome
0: what would you like your legacy to be
1: what do you think i'm going to die
0: no, but we <laughs> all are
1: going, yeah, <laughs> sometime,
0: at some point.
1: I'll give you an honest answer. I mean, I'm very wary of visiting the part of my ego that would have me think about. It. I really am, I really am, I'm not thinking of my legacy. But I do appreciate this much. I think that will be there. And, you know, I, I run into people to this day who say, Oh, I just read news uh, and blah, 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 blah. It's nice to be out there in the culture. That I appreciate.
0: Well, I have our final question for you. Uh-huh. Having lived the life you've lived, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 13-year-old self?
1: The language I would use, I can't use. <laughs> you know, there's probably all sorts of things I would tell my, myself my 13 year old self. But the problem is this, you've got to be your 13 year old self before you get to be your 73 year old self. So, and that 70 year old self has to be that in the moment. So it is a certain futility to say, don't do that. You know, it seems to me that with our young people, we try to keep them safe. We try to keep them from Making wrong decisions, we try to keep them from missing that. We try to prevent those things. But a lot of times, a person has to just live out what they have to live out. Rather than being preventives, we should be better diagnostician to really understand what's happening, rather than say, don't let it happen. And understand what to do when it happens. I think that's because... For me, every bad thing that's happened, every failure, every negative thing, ends up there's something in it for me. I learn something, or I grow, or I get strength. So when a young person falls down, we got to show them that this isn't a tragedy. And it doesn't mean you're an idiot, but look what it teaches us. Look at the light that turns on. That's the kind of thing I try to put across when I talk to young people say, hey, don't do that. Um, I really can't think of anything specific. I would say to myself as a younger person, well, I would say, you know what? You matter, but you don't even know it yet. You know, you don't know that you matter because later in life, the people I was a kid, when I was a young kid, who I thought thought I was a piece of a dorm turret to give me a completely different story. So my doubt did jump from them; It came from me, you know, my own evaluation of myself. So I might tell myself, you know, is believe in yourself a little more. You know, maybe that's what I would tell myself. Believe in myself a little more. That's something you're not going to get from the outside, you know, from the get-go.
0: Well, Lee, it's been such an honor to have you on today's show. And Jamie, I want to thank you for co-hosting. We've learned a lot today. And so thank you so much for the conversation. You're welcome. Lee, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And I hope it was worth your time.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Bye-bye. Taxi.
0: Thanks for listening to Formative, a production of New York Edge. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick. And if you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, free and confidential help is available 24 hours a day at the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. My co-host today was Jamie from PS 225X in the Bronx. She was assisted by Jasmine. Season 5 of Formative is brought to you by the generous support of Macy's Inc. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. This episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Post-production by Alex Brower. Original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcast.